All right, we're uh, here, and um, like always, dedication time before we begin. So here with Dennis. Uh, Dennis, you're the guest. Uh, you get to de- 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 decide who you want to dedicate or what do you want to dedicate this episode to. Uh, so this episode, we will be dedicating to one of my favorite graphic novels and films of all time, Watchmen. We're going to actually dedicate it to the thing we're going to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I've never had this before. Okay, this is good. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, we're back on the St. Paul Filmcast. With me is Dennis Vogan. Did I do it right? You did do it right. Thank you. Okay, I worked on it. I worked on it. Uh, <laughs> Dennis is uh, um, from the Twin Cities, uh, a comic book artist. Um, so he's not a filmmaker. And um, usually when we don't have non-filmmakers, we have creative people. We pick one movie to talk about. And Dennis is nice to, to select The Watchmen. Uh, for people who are not familiar with Dennis, uh, tell us a little about you, uh, what what story you're doing, and comic book artists, and how the people can find you. Absolutely. So, like you said, my name is Dennis. That is my birth name. <laughs> um, <laughs> you don't so, have like a pen name. I don't. No, no. It's uh, my actual name. It's my real name. Before uh, you get started, you have... Um, you have a great first name because when you do your editor, you do your, from your editor's notes and you write like a, you know, like Stan used to do yeah. to the audience. But and that's from, intentional too. It's, it's almost, but it's like you have the perfect name because you can just say from the den. Of den. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> from the den. Right. I am the den. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So what I do is um, I'm currently, uh, like you said, I write and I draw comic books. Um, it's a series called The Weirdos, and the way that I sell it is it's about people who have problems who have potential. So one character is an alcoholic, um, one is depressed to where she's suicidal, yeah. one has cancer, one has anger issues and had kind of a, a terrible childhood, and all four of these characters end up at a fictional rehab facility uh, up north Minnesota called Lake Mary. And there they kind of form a uh, my version of the Avengers, which is called The Weirdos. And um, when I started writing comics, I wanted to... I wanted to write about something that I could talk about if I had a comic or not. Right. Um, I wanted to make something that was very personal and something that was very important to me. And that's the kind of stuff that keeps you going when you have those days where you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> why, why am I dedicating right. my life to drawing you know, these pictures and telling these stories? And when I decided on this concept, I was like, now this is something that I can, I can take far. So that's the basic premise of the weirdos. Um, if nobody sees you in person, you can't come to com- comic cons to see you. Uh, how could they find the book? Uh, so you should definitely follow me on social media. I know that most people have at least one form of it. Um, I am on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, and uh, my production company is called Sleeping Kitty Productions. So I mean, you can you can Google it. I'm on Amazon. Um, I have I've published three regular novels before I published my comic books. So if you type in so my regular name, writing, okay. yeah, regular writing. Yep. So I published three books as well. So if you type in my name in Google, you can find all my stuff too. Okay. Okay. And then we'll provide, we'll provide all the links so people yeah. have the on them information. So, Absolutely. Uh, so people can find you. Um, what is in the future for weirdos? If you can share. So um, I'm currently, I think that the way I'm going to continue it is I will focus on individual characters. Yeah. Um, I might not do issues. I might do just do graphic novels, like original graphic novels with every character because uh, I feel like stores have limited shelf space 
And so if I can com- put a complete story on the shelf as opposed to four or five issues that compile a story, it's, yeah. it's just yeah. more... It's a more attractive model of de- delivering stories, I think. And, you know, people, like, and as being a writer as yourself, and we're going to talk about The Watchmen, but I think the core of what people really love is characters. Absolutely. I think story, even if it's a fantastic story, um, if it doesn't have interesting characters, just doesn't, there's no nothing to latch on to. Um, and I think you have very interesting characters to do um i think to expand on your point too i think you can have a terrible story but if you have good characters you still want to like hang on you still want to go along for the ride because you like the characters so much yeah i'm looking at like a show like seinfeld where the plot didn't always matter but people just really love those characters and they watch them do whatever whatever they were doing that day oh yeah you wait for kramer to come in and just (laughs) exactly exactly i mean and that that describes most sitcoms i think i think plot wasn't always the, the heaviest factor in when uh, they were, you know, writing a sitcom is always about character base. And then I think this is a, a really core of what The Watchmen is. I think the, the whole story is not so much important as how developed the characters are. And I think if you're out there and you're a writer, you really have to work on characters to make it pop out, to make it definitive and definite because the story might be fabulous, but there's no like, people will say, ah, the story was good, but there's nothing else to it. So yeah, it's characters and you have wonderful characters to work on. Thank Hard you. to do more than one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah Cause the thing is, you know, yeah. I am like, I'm a, I'm a straight white dude. So when I think of a character, it usually starts as a straight white dude. <laughs> it does. It, it, does, it right, absolutely yeah, yeah. does. So yeah. you're looking at, and then my, my actual characters are all with the exception of one, not straight white dudes. And that was very intentional because that's not the world that we live in. Um, I live yeah. in that world, but I am one of, you know, 7 billion people. Uh, so I was very intentional about how I wanted to represent a lot of different kinds of people. And that's where my characters came from. I, I did a little bit with my story and I, I do, if I could share with you, but oh, yeah. uh, you know, it's very male dominant. It's very patriarchal. My story, cause it's a noir, but I initially started with a one female character as the core and let the spider web have an entanglement. That's what I started with that. This, female character even though she might be not the main is the central figure to all this she is the connecting point to all these characters and to the point where she's not even in the story she's important to why these people know each other so um and then i put in a, a driving force with mine is um getting a, a female you know opinion to it you know well, it's something such. Well, that works. That's beneficial because uh, it's hard to, especially when you, you don't have a Y chromosome, yeah. You, yeah, uh, get the other opinions going. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's it's interesting, too, because now that these characters exist, I would love people who relate more closely to them to write them in the future. Um, I would love yeah. to expand my characters to having other writers and other artists approach yeah. them. Just um, put your opinion on there. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. we're looking at, you know, writing someone like Spider-Man or Batman is fantastic, except that they have like 60, 70 years of canon of history. And it's kind of hard to start a new story that way. Um, these characters are brand new. They don't really have a canon. They have one issue each. And um, anyone who wants to jump on can help build their history, which I think is like the most exciting thing ever. Um, definitely, Dennis, when we talk about The Watchmen coming up in a few minutes, we're, I'm going to see a lot of similarities. Did this book have an influence on your own original story? <laughs> Indirectly. Like, the more that I think about it, and I did a lot of research last night, just kind of like my homework, um, but 
I didn't realize how much it had affected me. Until you started looking yeah, at it. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, yeah. And the thing is, some of the stuff I did was to be the opposite of Watchmen. There were some things, like, for example, I don't think my books are very dark at all, even though the subject matter can be kind of serious. Yeah. Um, that was something that I was very aware of because Watchmen and its kind of companion book, uh, Dark Knight Returns in 1986, they started the dark and gritty movement. And so <laughs> um, I, I guess that my books were kind of a response to that now. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. I'm, <laughs> I'm advocate. Yes, yes, yeah. I'm listening. Um, so yeah, so my, I, I did some things that were like a response to Watchmen, but like you said, characters were the key and um, um, making things realistic in a fantastical world was also key. So some things happened in my comic that um, wouldn't happen in real life, but hopefully they deal with it in a realistic human way. Um, another thing that I think Alan Moore and I did in common is he wrote a comic book. Um, he did some things in his comic that you can only do in comics. And I did the same thing with my book. I actually like, I fantasize about if Netflix wanted to buy the weirdos, what would they do? Because there are certain moments in the book that are essential to the book that you couldn't film. And that was very intentional. And that's kind of what Alan Moore did when he made Watchmen. He made a comic book. I made a comic book. And later in his life, he really was adamant about the stories, making so it would make it difficult to change to a movie, even though they kept doing it, like League of Extraordinary Men. And from hell, they continued to make his V for Vendetta, yeah. Um, V for Vendetta. But he was adamant that he was writing specifically for comic books. For the medium. And like, good on him, but also like... We'll talk more when we get to Alan Moore. I, I wrote some notes on Alan Moore, but so um, let's get to just to the start because what happened was in 1980, DC Comics absorbed Carlton Comics characters. Carlton Comics went bankrupt, and DC, for a very low price, picked up all the characters that were in the Carlton Comics, and a lot of them are featured in the Watchmen. And um, definitely not so Rorschach. Rorschach was definitely uh, somebody invented. But, so here, let me yeah. let me clarify what happened. So they bought. Charlton. Yeah. And Alan Moore started writing The Watchmen with these characters. Yes. It turns out that all these characters had a lot of backstory and they had a lot of ties to um, DC. So he actually changed all of the characters. So the characters in Watchmen are original characters, but they're based on the Charlton characters because that's how the story started. That's why you did yeah. a much better yeah. job of me. <laughs> no, um, that's that's why I'm here. <laughs> um, so Alan Moore, really, the influence was the title is a speech that John F. Kennedy was supposed to deliver the day in Texas when he got assassinated. And simply the line, if I can read it, the line, um, what was in his speech before, he couldn't, wasn't able to do the speech, but he would simply say, in this country, in this generation, are, by destiny rather than choice, the watchmen on the walls of freedom. And Alan Moore wanted to play a little bit on that, was, well, who's going to watch the watchmen? So, and you think that's, a, I think the core of the story is, do you have a lot of people who are protectors of the world, but who's monitoring their behaviors? <laughs> yeah. So that's the start of it. Um, and the interesting point is the day that JFK died was the first episode of Doctor Who. Okay. I actually did not know that. I'm a huge Whovian too. I had no idea. <laughs> the first episode of Doctor Who was on the same day as JFK was assassinated. So okay. That's it, a fun fact. I learned something new today. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Whovian. I had no idea that was that was. You might be bored, but I'm going to make sure you learn something. So yeah. where was the doctor that day? Can we ask? <laughs> I don't know. Right. <laughs> uh, so, right. If you want to get started, that's, that's a little, so the Carlton Comics. Yeah. So Carlton Comics. Uh, yeah. So they had, um, 
like you said, they had bought out Carlton and they or Charlton, sorry, and they had gotten all these characters. And Alan Moore started Watchmen using these established characters, but then it became kind of a headache. So all of these characters are now stand-ins for the Charlton comics characters. So for example, Night Owl was Blue Beetle. Um, Rorschach was the question. So they're actually all based on archetypes that they had inherited from this company. Um, yeah, and they but they're all original characters, though, technically. Yeah, they just, you could see, uh, you could definitely see the question. He wears the hat mm-hmm. and the Oh, yeah, the mask they're, and, they're very thinly yeah. veiled um, yeah. representations of these characters. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, continue. You did some fascinating research about this. So, I did, I yeah. did. So, yeah, so... Uh, this book came out, like I said, in 1986. It came out at the same time as The Dark Knight Returns. And that year uh, marked a huge change in comics. Yeah, a lot of people almost thought it was like the end of comics. Like that was kind of the end all be all. It also ushered in what we're you know calling the, the dark and gritty era, which exists to this day. No, I was in, um, in 85, 86. I was in eight, uh, eight years old. I was in second grade. And it, it was announced. It was like in papers. This is the end. This is it. Um, because it's a change from this is fun and, you know, cute and, you know, Batman's rounding up robbers and he's smiling and it turned into a very serious tone that people think that kids aren't going to buy this, you know, anymore. Parents are like, you're not going to have kids anymore. You're killing the industry. So, yes, continue. And instead of killing the industry, it actually re- reinvigorated it. It actually, like, Comics have always been a viable and a serious art form, regardless of the content, and people just don't see that seriously. And so these books came out, and they kind of changed the landscape. I mean, Watchmen is one of the top 100 novels of all time, according to Time Magazine. Like, not graphic novels, novels. Um, this is a, it's a serious book. And, it's and Time just, Magazine got repercussions for even doing that in the 90s. Yeah. Like, they were really, this is, no, you're talking about books. And so um, it's still, I think, comic books are fighting for legitimacy still today. Mm-hmm. And this came out. 1985. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, the Watchmen, the original series, came out between um, 86 and 87. It was 12 issues originally. Yeah. So technically, Watchmen isn't even a graphic novel. It's a trade paperback. I mean, it just collects these issues. But most people know it as a graphic novel because yeah. it is a complete story. Yeah. Um, I in 85, I was in utero. So I was born into this dark and gritty world, basically. Dennis, don't do that when I'm drinking coffee. <laughs> just, just being honest, just being honest. But yeah, so these books came out and they just changed the landscape. And sometimes for the better, sometimes for for the worse, I guess. Um, but if, if, if you've, I mean, interrupt, I'm sorry. Oh, no, you're but right. it, it was something that it was, comic book world is so pregnant that this had to happen. Yeah, or someone, somebody had to do it. Someone and I was think Alan Moore knew this had to, some, something had to change. It is getting so saturated with these and people got tired of writing the same, you know, you know, silly stories that we wanted some. And I think the kids were, he thought the kids were ready that they wanted something serious to put in there. Yeah. And this is, a, like I said, it's a very serious book. Yeah. Um, I mean, Dave Gibbons now has even <laughs> apologized because something that came out of this, I keep talking about the dark and gritty movement. A lot of books and movies came out after this with this dark and gritty aesthetic without the intellect, without the heart. So you got a lot of these movies that were really focused on the like the outer aspects of the dark and gritty without getting to the interior of what makes Watchmen such an incredible piece of work. You got it. Yes, you got it right. Uh, um, definitely the 89 Batman, which was influenced on the Dark Knight mm-hmm. Returns and the Watchmen, but it still has some elements of being kind of kid friendly. Yeah. Well, that's Tim Burton, I think. A little bit, yeah. yeah Even I though it Tim, gets yeah. a little bit dark at times, you know, but it has a little elements of a tone that really the Watchmen, which is funny because it's a very brightly colored comic book, has some, it's a hard contrast. And I have some um, problems with Zack Snyder with it, but the Watchmen has some bright tone and color. 
but the themes are very, very different. Yeah. yeah. And the colors are actually really interesting. Uh, what's the guy's name? John Higgins, I believe. Yeah, John yes, Higgins is the, the colorist. Famous, it, yeah. yeah, and he um, he very purposefully picked uh, secondary colors as the primary colors for the entire book. So, you know, primary colors, we think of like Superman, you know, red and blue and all that good stuff. Um, they went with a lot of greens and oranges. And browns, and yeah, 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 yeah. Just those colors that you don't normally see in comics because obviously this wasn't your your grandparents' comic book. Yeah, I and, like that. I like that. And it's supposed to be a next generation anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's it. And you were just mentioning Zack Snyder when it comes to the color and that's something that I had written down too. Should we get into the movie? Kind of um, yes, before we get into the movie, I want to talk about The Watchmen. Another head of criticism that um, artist uh, Dave um, just used a simple nine panel page, which people like thought we evolved better to do. Um, and the reason is just for, for mass production. Just get, we had, you know, he had so much content, so much story to write that a simple nine page had to be happen. Um, There's also, though, it sets a rhythm when you read the book. Yeah. So it's almost like, you know, you listen to a song in 4-4 and you expect that beat. So once the book is broken down into nine-page panels, you expect a a nine-panel beat. Yeah. Um, And so... You'll get like, so say there's the regular nine panels, right? You kind of count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's how a page goes, right? Now say you get one, two, three, and then the next panel takes up all three. It Your your eye dwells on it for three panels worth of time. So there is very deliberate. Yeah. So yeah, so when you get to those moments, you're like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to take a second and look at this. And um, yeah, so everything is designed by the nine panel Um page but it breaks up a lot and it's it's all rhythmic like it actually moves your eye through it in a specific way which is super cool um and then last year for uh 2018 um uh, mitch garens when he drew tom king's award-winning uh mr miracle he used the nine page Mm -hmm. um template just because of a watchman and um he again got criticized for it because it was uh, the the artwork wasn't traditional it was very computerized and very sketchy oh i love yeah. mr Arts. But, it, yeah, the, like. but the mr miracle please check it out it, it won for writing oh, it's, it's it won amazing. for our work it's, it's i just, love mr miracle it's one of my it was my, probably my favorite book last year it was it, it, it was, was my, yes it yeah, was my yeah, too it was, it's that's an amazing piece of work and um yeah, it says a lot of things. Uh, but you can't, you never got that book without The Watchmen. Yeah, I yeah. honestly, like, I don't think you get a lot of what we have now without The Watchmen. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, right. Just don't. Yeah. And the thing is, like, I I was born a year before Watchmen came out, so I didn't exist in that world pre-Watchmen. So, like, I, it's kind of like kids being born now into the internet. Yeah. When I describe what things, is that? Yeah. yeah, when I describe things when I was a kid, like payphones and stuff, they look at me confused. Like the Watchmen was like the internet of comics <laughs> when it came out. It just it just changed everything for the better and sometimes the worse. But <laughs> all right, so it took actually a long time to get the movie made. I think pretty much people regarded as toxic. Like we don't want to change this. We don't do it. They don't think they can make money on the movie. It took actually quite a while. And so, we're talking about like two thousand. Nine is when it finally was released. Released into a movie. Um, but actually, the word they always used was unfilmable. Yes. Um, yep. And like we were talking about earlier with Alan Moore, he writes comic books. He doesn't write books for film. Um, he says that a lot too. He's like, if we're just writing comic books and novels for film, then why do we have different media? They might as well just be scripts, right? And so that that's the way he argues it. And that's, you know, it, he has a good point. Um, 
I actually have a whole page of notes on. Uh, so Terry Gillum, do you know who that is? From oh, Monty everybody Python? should know. Yeah, yeah, he's a fantastic director. But yeah, he's on Money Python. He was going to make a version of The Watchmen way back in the day, and like the facts that I learned about his version are incredible. But um, he would he, just turn it on his head. Yeah, yeah like I don't his, think Terry is one of those people that would take it literally from the book. He would take his own. No, so yeah. like he had a lot of things that were in the book, but his ending was dramatically different. So uh, if you've ever seen The Watchmen, this is not a spoiler, it came out in 86, but the way that it ends both in the film that we have and in the comic is New York is destroyed. In the comic, it's destroyed by a giant squid that um, is purported to be from a different dimension. Yeah, it's like an alien. Yeah, and in the film, it's, uh, it's a bomb. And yeah. it just decimates New York. In Terry Gillum's film, how he has it end is Dr. Manhattan goes back into the past and he stops the accident that changed him into Dr. Manhattan. And so he never becomes Dr. Manhattan. And when he returns to our present, all of the Watchmen are just costume performers. They never became superheroes. That was how his movie ended. It's very anticlimactic. <laughs> yes, it's very, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting, but it's not the Watchmen. No, um, and especially when you read this and you watch the movie, you need a big payoff. This is something that went really, you're following so many characters, you need a big payoff for this. Well, yeah. and I think that something that is very apparent in the movie is, you know, the stakes, you know, and when, oh, yeah. when New York ends, it ends like there's no going back with the time travel stakes. The whole movie didn't exist anymore. You know what I mean? Like yeah, nothing, nothing that you just saw happen. So that doesn't make any sense to me. It's kind yeah. of a, a clever, ironic payoff or whatever, but it's not, it's not even a payoff. I don't know why I called it. That. So the whole nineties and early two thousands, this is kind of radioactive of a story, even though around comic book world and a lot of comic book movies being made, nobody really wanted to touch it. Yeah. So carry it, carry on. Um, yeah, we can go past. So I have a lot of Terry Gillen facts. I'll just try to like squeeze them in there as we're talking. This but. is fascinating. Yeah. So like uh, initially, and Zack Snyder had considered this too. They wanted to do a mini series. It's a four hundred page novel, and so you know even a three hour runtime that's not a lot to fit four hundred pages, especially dense material. Four hundred page comic book. Yeah, I mean, in a nine panel. So that's why I want to set up is it's nine panel per page. That's a condense a lot of contact. Con- content mm-hmm. for just a one page of a book yeah. and you have 400 pages so there is a immense amount of stuff in this. yeah so like uh so terry gilliman originally wanted to do a um <clears throat> a five-part miniseries that's what he wanted to do for television that was his original plan yeah uh, just so he could really like dive into the the content and then Zack snyder initially said i want to make a movie but now recently has said that a miniseries would work um, and we th- got one now. Yeah, so we'll we'll talk about that a little bit too. Yeah. I want to talk most, mostly about the film, but yeah. Um, yeah. So let's let's talk about the Zack Snyder film. Let's talk about Zack Snyder first. Well, I was we? okay. Uh, well, I was talking about a little bit. I like to build up because we have so much. Yeah, but so the Terry Gilliam thing got. Oh yeah, the we executive talk, said. If you want to get some did, random facts, this is like this is fantastic. Right, so, so what did the executive say? No. So word. Joel Joel Silver was gonna be the producer. So I don't know if you know Joel. You know Joel. Yeah, Silver, yeah, right? yeah very yeah. famous for yes. action. So movies. he's yeah he's done just a ton. He did the Matrix, and you know he's done he's done a lot of movies like that big movies. He also done small movies like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. That was like one of his his. Babies. Which is, was a great sleeper movie. Yeah, oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. So he's done a lot of different kinds of movies, but um, <laughs> a actor for Rorschach was Robin Williams was going to be considered for Rorschach. And initially you think that's crazy, but then you think of like one hour photo where he played this creep. He played yeah. this guy who um, is maybe maybe like not all there, maybe on the edge. Yeah. And you can kind of see Rorschach there. So I, I don't, I think it's kind of inspired. Um, that's around the time though, he's probably playing Genie. <laughs> 
He was yeah. the. Um, there's another comic book link with Robert Williams is when the audition for uh, the '89 Batman. They really wanted to get Jack Nicholson to do the Joker. Mm-hmm. Jack was kind of no, no, not really. So they would actually hire other actors to audition to entice Jack. Oh. So they used uh, Robert Williams as a crumb to come in and audition for the Joker, never thinking of That's ever sneaky. ever hiring him. And Hollywood when Robert Williams sneaky. found out, he was livid and didn't ever want to work with Tim Burton again, didn't want to do anything with Warner Brothers. So there's definitely another comic book link to, <laughs> I think, you, you need entertaining Robert Williams to do another comic book movie, but probably never really materialized. Yeah. Um, another casting note, uh, Dr. Manhattan, they were considering, Joel Silver really wanted Arnold Schwarzenegger to be Dr. Manhattan. Well, he's very muscular fit kind yeah. of guy, and I think that's... It's, just, it's still kind of odd, though, and the thing is, regardless, we still got to see Arnold Schwarzenegger painted blue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mr. As Freeze. Mr. Freeze, Mr. yeah, Freeze, years Freeze, later, right. so you know what? We know what he would look like. Yeah. We... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, speaking of Batman, there's a connection here. The man who wrote um, Batman and Batman Returns, his name is Sam Hamm, he wrote a screenplay for this Watchmen movie that Ter- Terry Gillum was going to has It's been on the shelf ever since. You can actually read it on the internet. I didn't, but you can. It, okay. it exists out there. Um, there's the new ending. Oh, so Zack Snyder was is actually on record to have saying the reason he made Watchmen the movie is to stop the Terry Gillums of the world from making it. So that was one of the reasons he did it. He saw that how terribly it could have gone, and he knows that they're going to make this movie regardless. And that's kind of why the TV show exists now, too, because Damon Lindelof knew that someone's going to make this. It might as well be me. Okay, yeah. Um, Warner Brothers, I think, saw the success of Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, um, thought that maybe there is some potential. So, you know, executives are always thinking, money-wise, can we make money on this? And saw that we could go with serious tone a little bit, that this is what actually be a payoff. And actually, you could see the trailer when The Dark Knight came on. The Watchmen trailer was on it. They definitely wanted a link to provide, if you like this t- movie, this Dark Knight movie, Watchmen before, it would probably be something for you. Yeah, they came out about nine months apart. So yeah. if you look at the climate, so Watchmen the movie came out in 2009. The climate in yeah. 2008, the first Iron Man had just come out. Yeah. So the MCU was starting in earnest. And then, like you said, Dark Knight, um, that came out that year as well. So this is like the year before. Before all, like before those two films, all we really had for successful adaptations like Blockbuster, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man Batman, and the X-Men. Those three yeah. were like really like the the benchmark as far as what superhero movies could do at that point. And so it's a perfect, even though it took a long time for the Watchmen, perfect time to because people with Iron Man and with the Dark Knight show what comic books can be, not just money makers, but could be potentially Oscar nominated films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And arguably right now is the perfect time for the Watchmen movie. And I was reading about this last night. I mean, you look at, have you heard the show The Boys on Amazon? Oh, yes. I mean, everybody's been okay, yeah. so, loading my DMs. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so like we're looking at, we are now in a very superhero savvy culture. I don't even know if 10 years ago it was quite at that level. Um, I think one of the reasons that Dark Knight was such a phenomenon is because of Heath Ledger and his passing. Like That's why it latched on to the zeitgeist in the way that it did. Yes, it's Batman, but it was also his final performance, and I think that that elevated the film. I think that now we're so savvy to superheroes, even just the most regular people, <laughs> you know, the normies out there who are not who don't have their walls decorated with comic books. <laughs> Even the normies are so well yeah. informed that Watchmen actually, I think, makes a lot more sense to them now because it is a take on the superhero genre. You're absolutely right. And yeah. I would like to play on that is I've known people who I know are not comic book savvy come up to me and go, when we're going to have our Moon Knight movie. And I was like, you guys know about Moon Knight? 
and yeah, and I know they're not avid collectors and not familiar with the comic book world, and that's how spread out it is. I don't think anybody ten years ago would know if you unless you collect comic books who Moon Knight is. So yeah, you were absolutely right. Yeah, now I think everybody is of comic book savvy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to I mean, even you know your grandma. You know, like like everyone knows who Iron Man is now. I bring this up all the time because I have some friends who are kind of disappointed with the upcoming like MCU slate, the upcoming Marvel slate. The next phase. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're like, I don't really see a lot that I'm excited about. And I'm like, you all forget that when Iron Man came out, nobody had any hopes for it. Nobody, yeah. like, Iron Man wasn't a Spider-Man. He wasn't Batman. And it was the first Marvel Studios movie. So honestly, like, people were kind of expecting it to flop. Like, it, like nobody had any idea what was going to happen 10 years later. Unlike people all. who collected, we knew the potential of Yeah, Iron and, Man. you know, Robert Downey Jr., like, even he was kind of a flight risk. I mean, I guess pun intended, because he's Iron Man. But, um, yeah, he was kind of a flight risk when they brought him on, because yeah. he's going to hold this huge movie up. Like, he was, you know, just got arrested for drugs two years ago. Like, So, if, just to brand, leech yeah. off Iron Man, um, the insurance to keep Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> yeah. in the movie was astronomical. It was in the millions because of they want to recover losses if you go on another drug binge. Yeah. So, the insurance was actually more than his pay. Um, and the person who paid for Robert Downey Jr.'s insurance was Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson. Yeah, he wrote I was going to. I was going to assume John Favreau. No. I was going because he really, he really, right, you know, yeah. for him to be on there. But Mel Gibson has always been behind Robert Downey Jr. Supported him through all his. And I think Mel understands that you can have your problems. Yeah, <laughs> and you can probably bounce back. And you totally supported Robert Downey Jr. coming back, and huh. he was one of them that's always been in his court. And I think that was a nice gesture to support Robert Downey Jr. for pay, just paying the insurance for him to do the movie that he couldn't afford to do. Yeah, you're giving me two fun facts today already that I did not know. <laughs> <coughs> I had no idea about Mel Gibson. That's that's very interesting. You didn't really advertise it. I don't think you. Well, I mean, you don't really have to, but obviously yeah. someone knew it because it got out. <laughs> it got out and got it. Well, I think it was an interview in Empire Movie Magazine. Okay. Robert Downey Jr. talked about it. So, yeah, interesting. Carry on. This is interesting. All right, so we were just talking about the climate. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, so I wrote down climate and then impact after it, because you're looking at that was the world in 2008, 2009, when Watchmen finally came out. Yeah. And then now look at 2019, and like we were just talking about the context. Now everyone has, you know, they're a little more savvy when it comes to superheroes. So it's been 10 years since the movie came out. Yeah, and we're looking at just in the last couple of years, you know, we've got now, we've got Deadpool, we've got Venom, we've got the new Joker movie that came out, mm-hmm. and these are all direct descendants of both Watchmen the comic and Watchmen the movie. Um, I mean, Alan Moore, you know, yeah. did the killing joke as well. So like he, I don't know, he, he's just so influential in that adult tone that was set in the late 80s. And if you, if you ever seen the picture of Alan Moore, he looks like the crusty old grandpa that keeps the, the Absolutely. <laughs> he, he wrote Swamp Thing and he looks like the monster. <laughs> but he's, he's just rising like, from the swamp and that's how he writes his books. But. For comic book fans and comic book writers, he's always regarded as the old pillar of the comic book industry, the old crusty grandpa that yeah, makes he's sure. the, he's the crusty old man you know get off my lawn and don't remake my comics you know <laughs> he's that guy <clears throat> there's a great picture of him with Jack Kirby in the background of Alan Moore in the microphone just limiting to reporters how they don't take his comic book serious and he is just spewing and you can see in the background Jack Kirby just smiling <laughs> okay you go on your rant I'm gonna step away from this chair and you go <laughs> oh Jack <laughs> right. I actually have I've written here Moore's Wrath and then Gibbons blessing. I think they they represent a very interesting dynamic, the two of them, because they're they're equally responsible for the Watchmen, and they're very different personalities. Extremely different. You know, so you're looking at more. I wrote down ego, intent, <laughs> curses. So there are people who believe 
that because more is it kind of into the magics that he has actually cursed certain productions. He's cursed certain individuals. Damon Lindelof, who's doing the Watchmen TV series right now, he believes that more has cursed him. <laughs> um, and it's funny cause it's tongue in cheek, but if you know, Alan Moore, there's a, there's a hint of legitimacy to that fear <laughs> that he actually has cursed you. Um, so let's see. I, I hate to point this out too, but it's very hypocritical of Alan Moore to, not fully understand why people would want to use his pre-existing material to make more because Alan Moore does that all the time. I know um, it's very, very, it, it's a lot of people who are turned off yeah, by him yeah. because he's very hypocritical. Don't make it into a movie, but of course I'll accept all the money of you turning into the movie. But he I'm, actually like, yeah. I don't think he gets any money because he takes his name off of everything. Yeah. Um, I'm talking more about his actual work. He has a lot of, novels where he took it pre-existing characters and made them his own so the watchman started yeah. that way yes um, we were talking about that but also you look at something like leave league of extraordinary gentlemen yeah. we took a bunch of pre-existing characters and made them something else uh lost girls he wrote which featured a bunch of like you know wendy from or not wendy um wendy from uh peter pan alice from wonderland yes. like these characters he took pre-existing characters and he made them their own so it's kind of hypocritical for him to not understand why people would want to do that with his work. Correct. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. So I think that's why it's one thing to be crotchety. It's another thing to kind of be not looking in the mirror as closely as you should be. Exactly. You know what I mean? And it does. That's one heavy criticism people have. Of yeah. yeah. And he's a, he's a brilliant man and he's written some stuff. Uh, top 10 is one of my favorite graphic novels. You ever read that? Not yet. <laughs> top 10. He uh, wrote about a city that's all super beings and it's about the cop force there. And how do you, you know, deal in this world yeah. where everyone's super powered and it's it's fantastic. It's really, really good. Well, it's the whole theme of who's watching the Watchmen. If the yeah. Watchmen are watching over us, who's monitoring them to make yeah. sure they are, you know, on the Yeah, but in this world, everyone's super powered. So there's like, everyone's kind of on the same level. Uh, yeah, but you're looking at the police force. So yeah, it's another version of the Watchmen, basically. Kind of, yeah. kind of, yeah. Um, and then I wrote Gibbon's Blessing because, like you said, he's the opposite of more. He's a kid in a candy shop. And they're like, we want to make a movie based on your work. He's like, where do I sign? Yeah. Um, he's on set. Like, he, he's on Zack Snyder's film. He was very hands-on. He'll you know? go to any Poe Town Comic Con, you know, yeah. where Alan Moore takes a lot to make an appearance. Mm -hmm. But Dave makes it adamant to even go to um, some crotchety little small town and come to the Comic Con to see his fans. And he's supportive of whenever his work is is taken and is given new life. He doesn't always like it, but he doesn't have to. You know, yeah. like that's not that's not required. You can still be supportive of someone without liking what they do. Right. Um, yeah. I have a lot of fans who are the exact same way. <laughs> They're like, hey, I like you. Your work is, you know, uh, but I like you, so yeah, I'm going like to keep you. supporting yeah, yeah. you. Um, but I do, yeah. I do have friends too. Like, yeah. you going to read my book? No, no but no, I'll hang yeah, out with I'll you. I'll buy it. <laughs> yeah. But I'll buy it. Like, if it, if it keeps you going and makes you happy yeah but i'll hang out with you <laughs> no most most people are pretty nice to me about it but no yeah so yeah gibbon's well, the I'll, exact opposite to spawn off that a little bit if you are a writer and you're going to make something don't expect to start your career with your friends and family yeah they're going to support you but you want to expand out to people unfamiliar to enjoy your stories yeah and, and hopefully like will... you have good friends and family to where if they receive your book and they like it they give it to someone who's never heard of you and they like it too yeah. that's kind of how it starts too like you you get introduced to something by maybe someone who is closer to the artist or the writer but you have no personal interaction with them you end up reading this and you're like this is awesome and that's well, all the fire starts yeah yeah yeah, yeah it just kind of goes from there or you know you you and i do conventions and that's we meet a lot of strangers all the time who become friends yes. you end up in their house on a sunday morning you know recording a podcast it's still hard 
hard to digest, and I think you got to get used to it. Of somebody mm-hmm. who have you have no idea who they are, come up to you and say, "I like your stuff," yeah. and you're like, "I have no idea who you are," mm-hmm. and you're like, "Well, I don't know who you are, but I like your." Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's fantastic. It's a really good feeling. It and, does, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, when you're sitting there all by yourself and you're writing it or you're drawing it, you're thinking in your head, "How do I want people to react to this?" And I've I've been lucky enough so far in my short career to have moments like that. You know, an email or someone says to my face, like, "Like this means a lot to me." And I'm like, that's awesome because this means a lot to me to put down and out there. Yeah. So the fact that it means anything to you is just, that's that's really what it's all about, which it's, is so cheesy. So cheesy, but it's, it's true. Right. Yeah. It, you're a little bit cheesy too. Tess. A little bit. Yeah, a little, a little bit, a little bit. Um, but this is the whole reason why I started the podcast. Um, not necessarily, you know, really is true to promote other people's works and get them out and provide an avenue for them, but necessarily provides me for meeting creators too. Because you're, you're spending a lot of time by yourself. You don't know, you know, if anybody's going to appreciate it. You're all alone. But this is a nice opportunity to meet other creator people and get their, you know, feed off each other. Like, yeah, somebody else likes me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you get to and talk to them. So, all right. All right. So, come back. Okay. So, we've <laughs> talked about the creators of Watchmen, the graphic novel. We need to talk about Zack Snyder. And yes. there's a lot to talk about with Zack Snyder. <laughs> Um, his tone, his vision, his vibe. Um, yeah. He's got a very distinct vibe. I think that his filmmaking was inspired by these books before he even took on Watchmen. So we're looking at, you know, he did 300. He did, um, I think his first big movie was Dawn of the Dead, right? Dawn of the Dead. In 2004. Went, yes, which got rave reviews. Yeah. And you can see a lot of emphasis of film in that movie. Right. It doesn't really have a great story, but it has very fascinating characters yes. in it. Very fun characters. Um, and you can see how the texture and the, the really the lighting and how saturated it is. I think of just going back to think about it in my memory, how saturated the film is with, you know, color and how full it looked. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So he had the Dawn of the Dead. He did uh, 300. Um, I think, did Sucker Punch come out after watching? After watching. Okay. But, but you, if you notice in the beginning of 300 that he does kind of play on the 300 because of the comedian's apartment number is 301. Okay. And then when the intruder comes in to break the door on, the one drops and it says 300 on there. So it's kind of a little fun. I caught you, Zach. I didn't catch it the first time, but I caught it this time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's funny. So, yeah. So at this point, you know, he has kind of a tone. It's a darker tone. Um, I think, honestly, like he... And the 300 is a Zach um, Frank Miller Frank Miller book, story. Yeah. So and Frank Miller did The Dark Knight Returns. And I think it's a logical step of since he did The Dark Knight Returns, turn in, um, and he did 300, he did The 300. I think that's a logical step to use Alan Moore's script and yeah. hand it off to safe hands. Since he and already yeah, did somebody... Zach break, Snyder, yeah. like, as a dude, has the pedigree like to do Watchmen. You know what I mean? Like, I yeah. think that he's he's a fan first and foremost. Um I think he cares about what's going to happen uh, with this movie. I don't think he's doing it for a paycheck. Like I had said that quote earlier, he did it so the Terry Gillums of the world would not do it. Um, A lot of these people are stepping into these roles because ultimately Alan Moore doesn't own Watchmen. DC Entertainment owns Watchmen. So they're going to, evidently DC is a business and what businesses do is make money. And so Alan Moore doesn't, it, it conflicts with his personal ideals. But these people who make these things, the TV show, the movie, they know that someone's going to make it and they figure it might as well be me. So, you know, you know, screw the haters, like forget these people who don't want me to do it. Someone's going to do it. And I think I could do the best job. And I think that's admirable. They don't always pull it off. I don't think Watchmen, the film is perfect by any means, but I think it's good. And I think that it's way more influential than people think it is. Yeah. Uh, Yes. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So 
let's see. We were talking about, yeah, so we were talking about dark versus light, and I think that, you know, Zack Snyder, his filmmaking is very dark. Um, we were talking about the lighting, too, and the color. Yeah, and this is one of my heavy criticisms yeah. with Zack, is um, people talk about tone and theme, and Zack kind of thinks that they have to be the same. That tone and theme have to be the same, where Alan Moore doesn't, you know, will contrast a little bit. But here, it definitely, okay, the theme is going to be dark. I want the tone to be dark, and sometimes it doesn't really jive very well um overly sometimes you get over you know overly dark which this movie kind of does but yeah continue yeah continue. um so yeah so i wrote we were talking about this a little bit earlier but um dark and gritty people were confusing dark and gritty just meaning mature storytelling and that's yeah. not how it is so <laughs> yeah. mature storytelling is separate from dark and gritty you can have both and you can also have either yeah. Um, and that's what that's what a lot of people made that mistake when they were you know making books and movies after these two books have had come out they wanted dark and gritty like Watchmen like The Dark Knight Returns but they didn't have the mature storytelling and I have a funny anecdote not funny but an anecdote about um, what Watchmen the film did it's a very gory film until the end which is ironic because the book itself has no gore at all until the end Right. Yeah. So to set you up here, the most traumatic thing in the the whole as you go along in the story, the one of the most is the you know when Rorschach remembers his childhood. That is the that's how you're building up to that. But they even yeah. made it worse in the movie. You know when yeah. Rorschach is chopping that guy's head, that doesn't happen in the book. No. And so you're just, looking at yeah, Watchmen. Like even that fight scene between uh, Laurie and. Uh, Night Owl in the alley, right? They're like breaking guys' bones and stuff. That doesn't happen in the book. So the whole movie, violence-wise, is very gory. And then the payoff at the end with the bomb, there's no gore at all. They just disappear. So there's almost like no sucker punch. Conversely, in the book, it's not a very gory book at all until the end when the giant squid crushes everybody. And it's like six full pages of people just crushed and bloodied and buried and then it's a gut punch because yeah. there's no gore up until this point and then it's just all these dead people yeah. and that's where you get that visceral feeling so Zack Snyder for whatever reason flip-flopped how he did the gore so he desensitized you throughout the entire movie and then at the end he just made everyone vanish as opposed to the other way around to yeah. where there was no gore. Well I think he understood as a filmmaker that okay <laughs> we're going to make you sit in your chair for about over maybe three hours we need something to keep you there you know action wise action wise and then the ending, let's concentrate on the concept of the ending rather than just having a big, you know, action movie pay off everything, body parts exploding. But really, let's viscerally explain the ending, you know, rather than just having, you know, a big action thing, which we've been doing the whole time. Let's sit you and have you think about the ending more or less. Yeah, but it almost like makes it anticlimactic in it that way. It does. To where like, as opposed to all this, you know, we've seen all this violence, the whole movie, and then there's no violence, but everyone's gone. Yeah. So it just, there's something missing there, I think, as far as like an emotional level goes. And that's one of the criticisms of the film is yeah. there, you you go away kind of empty stomach. Yeah. After getting fill, 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 and then you're kind of left uh, empty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like, yeah, like being at a buffet and kind of leaving and you're not really, I mean, you're full, but you're not really satisfied. Exactly. There you go. You always do a better. <laughs> yes. I, that, that is not something I had in my back pocket. I just, it's going to be my tombstone. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, it was like some of the, we were talking about, you know, mature storytelling. Some of the stuff in the film just feels exploitative. You know what I mean? Like, Correct. Because it's, it's he's so exact with certain panels being translated to screen, but like you said, not with like tone or theme always. Yeah. So like you can translate something perfectly from the page to the screen visually. That's that's fantastic. But if you're not 
understanding the source material the way that you should, you're missing a lot of the things that made Watchmen what it is. Um, another thing I would have mentioned is in the script, you follow a new newspaper guy in the newsstands who delivers yeah. the news constantly, and that was omitted from the movie, but I think it's a very good barometer for the story because you know he's handing out all this fantastic stuff's happening but for him this is another day to sell the newspapers and then you see him and the kid as New York gets devastated so you're following these people along and then I think they witness the devastation as well personally not just on the newspaper. Well, then that's what we haven't touched on yet. There's a parallel story going on in Watchmen. Yeah. And they actually have recreated it. So they've done a cartoon called, it's called a Curse of the Black Freighter, I believe. Okay. That's the name of the comic book that this kid's reading. And so at the end of a lot of the issues, you need a couple pages of this comic that the kid's reading. And there's parallels between what the, what the comic the kid is reading is with what's going on in the real world. And they couldn't fit that in the regular cut of the movie, but they made this cartoon based on the comic. And if you watch like the Ultimate Edition, they actually intersperse this cartoon with the movie, so you can watch it like you'd be reading the book, which is totally cool. But it just wasn't it wasn't logical to do. No, too much. Like, yeah, yeah, it's too much. Something that um, translates not very well to the movie. But speaking but, of cuts and Zack Snyder, yeah, which I'm really excited to get this this theory out there. So he did. Uh, he kind of was the not pioneer, but like the the person behind the new DC universe cinematically. So, you know, they kind of had like um, Kevin Feige kind of, you know, doing Marvel. Like he was the one who was the ringleader, right? They had Zack Snyder be the version of that for DC. So he did, you know, three of their films and he started off with uh, Superman, uh, Man of Steel. Man of Steel. Nice enough for Zack to approach Christopher Nolan to get his influence. And actually Christopher Nolan was on set a lot of the times for Man of Steel. Yeah. And Man of Steel, we... (laughs) We have another hour. No, so uh, right. There's yeah, yeah. So with Zack Snyder's um, with his DCU films, I noticed that he always had a director's cut, and it was always so much better than the film they put in theaters, and that always boggled my mind. Um, if I'm going to pay money to see something in a theater, give me the two and a half hour, three hour movie. I don't care as long as it's good. So they would release these two hour movies in theaters and sometimes they would be kind of muddled or confusing. Even as someone who knows the source material, I'd be like, why is this happening? And then I'd get the extended cut on Blu-ray and I'm like, this is such a, this is, this is a good movie. This is a way better movie than the theatrical experience. I don't understand where DC is coming at with that perspective it's all of how can we keep them in their chair satisfied they really you know because if you think of a movie runs in a movie theater um, for two and a half hours well you can show more showings so they're looking at a clock and saying okay we can get eight showings a day but if it's three hours we can only get six but then, if you play then, the- then, then they think oh that's going to cut into profit well not necessarily true right if somebody sees a three-hour movie and they enjoy it they might come back you know but if you're playing the long game if you're dc and you're you're in the like if you make a good three-hour long movie the next time you make a three-hour long movie people are going to see it yeah you know what i mean if you make a bunch of crappy two-hour long movies people are going to give up on your brand they're going to say well i mean justice league flopped we all know that it flopped after the first you know three films came out because it was that same kind of they didn't have that yeah they're they're pretty much thinking as accountants you know, if I get eight showings instead of six a day, that should keep in the profit going. They're not creative thinking, you know, that people, no matter what their story is, if it's good, they'll come back and invest yeah. wholeheartedly. They're just thinking how many more people we can get in the seats. Well, and as we all know, the heart of art is math. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, crunching those numbers, you, you just lose a lot. What I think is kind of funny about the DC universe cinematically is that 
DC has been ripping off Marvel since they started, and why not rip off their movie model? Why not have standalone films for all your characters and then introduce the Justice League? They wanted to catch up, so then they did like three films before Justice League came out, and they were all very hastily made films. I mean, the reason that Superman's death doesn't work in Batman v Superman is because we didn't know Superman. We had one movie with him. Like, Superman's death worked in the comics especially because we had known him for 50, 60 years. Um, So when he died, it was a big deal. It was in the newspapers, like the real newspapers, that Superman's dead. Um, When you give one film with him and then you kill him, you don't get that impact, especially knowing he's going to come back. Right, yep. It's, yep, you are exactly. You need that duration. Yeah. So, yeah, I we won't talk about his other DCU films because I could talk about them for a long time, but um, I just wanted to mention right, that and his I cuts, think it's been beaten over in other podcasts of just yeah. over and over and over again talking yeah. about Zack Snyder films and stuff yeah. like that. But, like, his his the Zack Snyder cuts of films are always so much better than the ones they put in theaters, and I that's just something that kind of plagues me as a human being, like... Yeah, I don't think it's his decision, right? It's always the people oh, yeah, upstairs yeah. And saying... I'm not, I'm not blaming yeah. him for it, but yeah. I think he's a talented filmmaker. He's he probably still, puts like, in his contract that you want to do this version, I get to kick out my own version. Yeah. Well, so. that's the thing, though, because there's a Justice League version, or a Zack Snyder cut of the Justice League, which is supposed to be phenomenal, and they won't release it. So they're yeah. wondering if they're sitting on it to release it with one of their you know future streaming services or something. But, I mean, people, there's petitions online, like hundreds of thousands oh, of people Oh, yeah, there's a big it. billboard the, at the yeah, San Diego Comic-Con, yeah, right? Snyder cut. Let's see the Snyder cut. So, and I get their fervor. Yeah. I understand like why they want to see it because every extended cut I've seen is so much better than the theatrical cut. So, okay, now we come back. Actually, this is actually a good time to take a little break. How about that? Absolutely. All right, we just do. I've had a lot of stuff, so uh, we got to take a little break. I got to refresh my coffee and more. Uh, talking about the Watchmen with Dennis. From the galactic depths of the comic book universe comes the ghosts of the stratosphere, ready to galvanize and energize your mind with the latest of comic book news and reviews. And why, why are you stopping me? Yes, that's much better. Hi, this is Andy Larson for Ghosts of the Stratosphere. Join me every week along with my co-hosts Rob Stewart and Chad Smith as well as a cavalcade of fantastic comic book guests as we dish out heaping helpings of the greatest and latest of comic book news and reviews. New shows posted every Tuesday with bonus shows every first Friday of the month. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher under Ghosts of the Stratosphere as well as on our website www.gotstratosphere.com Hope to see you soon, folks. Okay, we're back with uh, Dennis Volgan. I can't. Uh, I love that. You're, you totally got it. Yeah, is it German? Um, no, it's uh, the root is well. It must be Wagen well, is like Wagen. What, what the root is. Wagen, I think, is like a a bay, a yeah. Wagen, like V A with the open <laughs> like yeah. all the two little dots. Yeah, the accent thing. Yeah, yeah, umlauts. I should know what they're called. Ooh. But V A G E N is where my <clears throat> name comes from. Okay, but yeah, and then they just. Slurted when they get over here. Yeah, when camera. they got over here, they're like Vogan. Yeah. And they're like, no, no, Vogan. Yeah, Vogan. Vogan. Now, well, that's my last name got massacred 
when the people came here from New York City. It was supposed to be something really long. I massacred yeah. your name at the doorbell this morning. <laughs> I'm like, I'm here for Nick. And I was like, Paladin right. Dick. Right. Yeah. You know, I think I think what I said sounded like a slur. I'm like, I'm not trying to be offensive. I just can't. So you say your last name. Palatichuk. Palatichuk. Yeah. Okay. And it's something probably a little bit longer when they came here. Yeah. And they just to condense it. That's the condensed version. Yeah. Nine letters. <laughs> yeah. All right. You know how happy I was in third grade when I was able to spell it without help? <laughs> I'm impressed that you got it in third grade. Yeah. Like I, I would still be like, I'm no. not really sure where the U goes. Uh, My wife had to bob her head when she does it. Mm-hmm. P A L O D. Okay, we're back. We're talking about the Watchmen, um, and we talk about what, what some good things about it, what some bad things about it. But um, Dennis, you have a new thing you you want to talk about a little bit of the. Um, Movie content-wise, because we're really talking about the book, but let's, let's get back to the movie. Yeah, here. well, we were talking about the movie, and I think we can also expand a little bit because the TV show just came out, and I think it's very fascinating, and it's something that we can talk about, too. Yeah. Um, before I get to the TV show itself, though... Have you been able to watch it? What's that? Have you watched The Watchmen? Yeah, I have. Okay. I have watched The Watchmen. I like that little... <laughs> Um, so we should talk about the impact though because I was talking about how influential it is and I don't think people realize it but we look at everything in our comic book television landscape right now all of it is affected by what 2009's Watchmen film did so it's easy to look at the DC films because you know Watchmen's produced by DC so we're looking at you know the Arrowverse so Green Arrow right that dark and gritty world like that exists the the vibe of it exists because of this and you can combine it kind of with Watchmen and also like the Tim Burton-esque aspects of his Batman Uh, you know the gothic looks of Gotham and stuff so a combination of those two but really like Watchmen informs that it informs the Gotham TV show that was just recently on Uh, just kind of like the adult the adult way they took on these characters Uh, did you watch Gotham at all? I did the first two seasons okay um by the end of it, it was just they were throwing every aspect of the mythology at the wall, and it was brilliant. It was the craziest show. If you knew anything about Batman, it would drive you insane because they didn't care. No, um, but it was brilliant. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, there were subversions of like all these things you thought you knew, and they knew that it was its own standalone thing, so they could do whatever they want. And I loved it. I, like the last well, season it, is crazy. Don't regurgitate them. If you're a writer, yeah, no. if there's something previously published. Don't just regurgitate it. Put your own staple on that. Yeah, it was like they ate a pizza, but they threw up a hamburger. And you're like, how did you even do that? Like, yeah. that doesn't make any sense. They 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 put out something yeah. that was not canon at all. But it, like I said, it was there's brilliant moments to it. No, and then, you know, with Arrow, um, definitely there's massive changes to what's in the book, mm-hmm. the comic books, and then in the show. In the show, he's still a kid and lives yeah. at home where Oliver Queen is on the comic books is a standalone person. He runs his own corporation and stuff like that. He's a little more Bruce Wayne than we want to admit um, yeah but he's a i would think even though he's a brightly colored there is some darkness to green arrow and obviously they got it there sure robin is yeah. who were who fooling it's robin hood yeah. right yeah. oh yeah, yeah he's yeah. robin hood for yeah. sure um i actually like i like the bruce wayne analogy i see him more if we're going like cross company i see him as more of like a, a dan is a danny rand yeah danny rand iron fist to where like he's kind of a reluctant rich person if that makes any sense like he robin hood. apologetic yeah so like imagine if robin hood had rich parents that's you know that that doesn't make any sense Oliver you know? Crane would be one of those people encouraging to tax me more yeah right yeah absolutely yeah and i think danny rand's the same way when he comes back from they're both on islands for a long time they yeah. came back and they had to readjust to this world and yeah they're both kind of you know they're they're altruistic characters but they had rich parents and so it's weird like if you can imagine Robin Hood having rich parents, that's kind of what would happen, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I think the biggest influence 
television wise is being seen right now the dc universe streaming network has a bunch of shows and they are all it just feels directly influenced by Watchmen. titans being the number one example so you know the titans oh right? yes, yeah the yeah. titans the teen titans um they've been around very popular since the 80s right yes they got um really did flourish with i know in the yeah perez we were just in the mid eight perez, perez yeah. did it yeah that's yeah. where it really got in the in marvel mid and late 80s yeah um prior to that it was pretty much for younger kids it was the sidekicks able to shine yeah that was pretty much it so the titans have been characters for a long time and their current series on dcu is a very mature <laughs> very very mature take on those characters um doom patrol is the same way that's another series that's on dcu it's a very mature take on the doom patrol characters we're talking like f-bombs nudity like it's i mean it's it's there but at the same time they're also doing the mature storytelling that i was talking about so they're taking these big themes as well and they're applying them which is brilliant Um, they're some of my favorite shows on tv right now one of the things when i was a you buy teen titans is you understand these are teenagers and so when you get teenagers who have unique gifts like that they're not going to be well behaved all the yeah. time you know they're going to you know do things they're teenagers that's their job yeah. right? or show up on time or be late or you know and it, it gets bleed into what i think what it really t titans is more fun about is if you really sh- present them as teenagers would do yeah and you know the x-men is a good example of of dealing with teen characters and setting up a school um the x-men are some of my favorite characters ever we could we could talk with them awkward it would be yeah right i mean the x-men are a stand-in for a lot of different things but awkwardness is definitely one of them (laughs) generation x is one of my favorite iterations of the x-men team and they they started when i was nine years old and a lot of their a lot of their abilities have to do with being an awkward teen. It has to do with like body horror. So like, for yeah. example, Chamber, when he developed his powers, the first time he discovered them, he blew a hole in the bottom of his mouth and his chest. So it's just plasma energy. It looks like fire, but he doesn't have half of his face in his chest. Um, another character named Skin, he stretches out his skin up to like six feet. So all these like body horror like issues that are very relatable for teenagers so you know being a nine-year-old i was kind of thinking about being a teenager someday so like i totally got this and i've been rereading generation x and i think it it definitely holds up yeah but yeah, i think you're really gonna invest talking about teenagers Mm -hmm. i really do the appreciation of don't be just cute about it right it's gonna be it's gonna be weird it's horrifying to be a teenager like even if you're a well-adjusted teen there are still parts of it where you're like this is terrible like how do i even get through this you don't you don't have the perspective of having you know 40 years behind you so in my my world of dealing with teenagers it's and i used to be one but it's kind of funny how one minute you can talk to somebody who you it almost seems like they're 30 years old Mm -hmm. and then the next minute like well, I got some candy. And they're like, oh, you have candy. And it's like all of a sudden they're back to being six. It's a fluctuation of maturity. And, yeah. and it's just the constant up and down of, and it can happen during the day. They're, they got their stuff down their their own. And then all of a sudden there's just, oh, video games. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then that plus superpowers, you know, in the right hands, that's gold. Yeah. You know? it so, just, but yeah so now the Titans are kind of like those teen Titans, but grown up. And I think Watchmen had a direct effect on how this show, not only how it was made, but how it's received now. Now we're used to this kind of world. We're used to seeing something that we're familiar with, superheroes, but more realistic and more adult. Yeah. And so I think that's why the show is so successful. And I'll talk about a little, let's get to talk a little bit about the characters and how flawed they are. And I think that's 
they're almost hanging on like a badge how flawed they are oh and Watchmen yeah yeah. and if you haven't watched the movie I'll just give a little point it starts with a murder Let's just talk about that. If you haven't really watched the movie, anything it starts with one of, the, the one of the yeah. one of the uh, probably about the captain of the team, um, the comedian gets murdered, and that starts an invest. The, the police and everybody starts investigating. So even though it's a uh, superhero movie, it actually is a murder mystery involved. Oh, a hundred percent is a murder mystery, and I think that's the best way to sell it to people who don't want to get into this. I mean, Watchmen is about a lot of things. Yeah. Um, it's you know it's political I mean in some ways there's it's spiritual like it's it's a lot of things but if you want to sell it to your friend you just say it's a murder mystery but the comedian's almost like Rambo mixed in with the Joker that he's somehow this somebody that yeah he's an awful human being an like awful the, human the, being yeah, he's, right. a, he's a really awful human being um, but like you said they're all flawed in their ways and um in a terrible way, they make you they make you like the comedian they make you they, they give you they humanize him because this is gonna be this is gonna be a very weird tangent. But I was watching um, that recent Michael Jackson um, documentary, right? And they talk about all these things that he had allegedly done. The HBO documentary of yes. Neverland. Okay. Yep. And they talked about all these things that he had allegedly done. And one of the people who was affected by it, they were asking him, why do you still seem like you love him? And he said, because he wasn't all bad. He wasn't. He wasn't black and white. He wasn't all bad. He still had some really good things about him, but he also had some bad things about him. And that's what Watchmen's about. Watchmen's about some people who do some very bad things, but they also have some good things about him. And I think that's what being a human being is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You are. I mean, the comedian is very uh, charismatic. Yeah. I mean, and he, he does the worst. I mean, he does the worst things that he a man commits can do. a rape and yeah. then he executes the woman the that's going to have his child. his child yeah he does the worst things that you can imagine yeah. and yet at certain points you chuckle at what he says and you're like what is wrong with me and, it's and a, that's the point yeah what's wrong with nobody's monitoring nobody can arrest him because he's such a talent of good you know for what he's done well, yeah. and nobody's monitoring and they're not going to be able to put him in jail because he's such a phenomenal you know he's part of the superhero league you mm-hmm. know you can um and the contrast that's what the boys is about too we were talking yeah. about that earlier that's yeah, The Boys is taking Watchmen to the next level uh, to where it's very comedic, but at the same time, it says the exact same thing. Who's watching these guys? Because the world at large believes that they're they're good, and we know from seeing what's behind the scenes that they are not. <laughs> so what I would say to anybody who's never read it or, or interested, and some people, and I, and I pitched it to my friend who's not a comic book, and I go, there are no bad guys in this movie you think mm-hmm. you know they rounded up some good guys to counter a bad guy in fact the bad guy is somebody really pathetic his name is Moloch and he's a past tense right all the bad guys that they fought are actually pathetic um, in fact when they have the dinner scene they talk about somebody who just wanted to be arrested beat me up please this villain or whatever they talk about yeah. so the bad guys are actually really people that you don't really care about they're actually they're, they're almost, irrelevant they're like, irrelevant yeah. yeah in fact they come and talk to the the guy at night owl comes talk to the bad guy Molak about the old days you yeah. know oh it used to be funny so you fight me and i fight you um so when you don't have bad guys who's the next fill is yourself yeah. right yeah you're the bad guy yourself or just the world around you and then you start seeing i mean rorschach is a fascinating character and when we talk about the TV show, we can get more into his his worldviews. But Rorschach, like his mask, is very black and white. Right. And that is, for some people, they feel like that's altruistic. Like, oh, this guy gets it. But it's not, because human beings are not black and white. Not a single human being that's ever existed on this planet is black and white. No, there's we, some, oh, I mean to interrupt, but Rorschach is a deep, deep, heavy psychological study. I think that's why his name is Rorschach, because here is somebody who's putting out a costume just to 
feel like he can go out in the world. I mean, he doesn't even like when his right, when they take off his mask. He says, "You took off my face." Mm-hmm. So obviously, he's a definitely traumatized person. But oh I, yeah, <laughs> but it's truly traumatized, and they don't leave that to your imagination. But either. I think they, it's somebody that even if he didn't experience that trauma, would probably be damaged himself already. Yeah, something like that. Even if he didn't experience the trauma, would somebody be somebody flawed? But that's something that it's almost like he needs it, right? He needs somebody to beat up. He needs this murder mystery. It's almost like he enjoys it, that he has a goal in mind. He can't just sit at home and watch TV. Yeah, I think his black and white ideals actually help inspire his violence. So let's say that you're a guy who likes to beat people up. I mean, people have argued that about Batman. They're like, maybe he's just a guy who likes to beat people up. And really, like, ever since his parents died, Batman is that guy. Like, he likes to get his frustration out on perps, on, you know, on the bad guy. Right. And um, he's obsessive. Yeah, he's very obsessive. And I think Rorschach is kind of cut from the same cloth, but he's not as smart, and he doesn't have that gray area that Batman has. Um, Batman does ultimately believe that uh, you shouldn't kill, and that um, everyone is hopefully redeemable. Um, that's right. like a big theme. I grew up with Spider-Man and Batman are like the two characters that I was most, I guess, obsessed with as a child. And yeah. both those characters did something I couldn't understand as a child. And why didn't they kill the bad guy? Because when you're a kid, I think that's your initial, that's what your, your gut reaction is. So when the Joker is still alive at the end of the, an episode of a TV show, you have that sense of uneasiness. Because if the Joker's dead, then there's no more there's no more harm. Right. But um, both Batman and Spider-Man don't believe in that. They believe that everyone has, they have to have that quality in them. Otherwise, what are they fighting for? You need that hope. Right. Um, and yeah, Rorschach doesn't have that. He no. doesn't have that sense of hope. It's black and white. If you're bad, then you should either be punished or die. As you're doing bad things, you're breaking into houses. and yeah, But he yeah. can rationalize it because he's Rorschach. That's how, yeah, that's yeah. how he rationalizes it. So he, he's... Behaving outside the law is, yes, it's a huge, you could write a thousand page psychological Oh yeah, when, just, when we talked yeah. about this during the podcast and I said, yeah. oh, Watchmen, I'm like, we could talk about this all day because <laughs> I mean, this is one character. I right. mean, we're just diving into one and there's a lot of levels. In, in fact, in Dr. Manhattan is flawed because he could solve it with a snap of his fingers. He, could, he doesn't. He, he can stop everything, but he doesn't. And it's almost like he's, um, almost like Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, mm-hmm. that he's thinking beyond good and evil, that this is just being played out. And, well, he talks about yeah. how small we are, how small our yeah. problems are. Like his perspective is all of time. He can, yeah. exist, when, he can exist whenever he wants. Yeah. So like he, he sees everything relatively. So if you stub your toe, that is the smallest problem that could have possibly happened to anybody. He doesn't care. But to you, that moment, it's the biggest thing that's going on in your life. Yeah. You know, like he doesn't have that perspective. Like you is, said, you know, well, like Thor said in Avengers, your people are tiny and your issues are Yeah. <laughs> and petty, Thor's petty. not even like omniscient. Like yeah. Thor's just a god. Like we're looking at Dr. Manhattan where he can see and be anywhere, not just in space, but in time. So yeah, he really does see how small we are. And why would he even care to change things, much less, you know, could he? Right. Yeah, but, yeah. But um, it's a wonderful saying: one person dies, it's a tragedy. A million, it's just okay. Yeah. You know? And I think that's how he regarded, it. and that's why Elmore wrote him is almost like a million people are going to die, and he's to him, it's just like, well, it happens. You but know? the way that Ozymandias explains it makes sense in his crazy way, to where he says, if if two million people die, the rest of the world will be saved. And again, math, Doctor Manhattan's like, well, that's a good deal. It is kind of mathematically, it's a good deal. Right? It's a good deal. Yeah, yeah, it's that whole, the philosophical question, you know, if you could, um, what is it? You could kill one person to save 10 people. You have to make that decision personally. Yeah. Oh, it's the uh, 
the surgery thing, right? Someone comes in, he's got all these organs, right? And he could maybe save this guy. Otherwise, if he dies, there's 10 people who could use all of his organs. You could save 10 people by letting him die. Like, what do you do? It's you hard. Know? It's yeah. hard. And I don't think anyone really has a right answer for no, it. No, there, there isn't a right answer. That's why it's philosophical. So, I mean, you save this guy's life. That's great. But these 10 people are going to die and vice versa. You could let this one guy die, but you have 10 people live on. That's yeah. the whole question that Ozymandias is dealing with in this book. So, I want to talk a little bit about Ozzy, Ozymandias' character. Um, it was actually a poem by Percy Blythe uh, Shelley, who was actually was married to uh, Mary Shelley, okay. who wrote Frankenstein. That was her husband. Um, and he wrote Ozymandias, which is a Greek interpretation for King Ramses, the pharaoh, the fair King Ramses II. Not only does that, but Elmore projects him almost like Alexander the Great. He's blonde. He's very smart beyond his means, very savvy. He can pretty much self He's egotistical. It's all about me, which Alexander Great was egotistical to the point where everybody gave up on him. All right, we're done fighting for you. He drove him through the desert. Instead of going back where they came, we're going to go home, but we're going to go through the desert for months because I'm really mad at you giving up on me. So there's a little bit of play of, even though it's emphasis of Ramses II, but a little mixture of Alexander the Great with this Ozymandias character who's actually a lot smarter than we wish he was. Yeah. Yeah. So you're looking at Dr. Manhattan, who we were just talking about, who is pretty much a god and then you have Ozymandias who thinks he's a god right. he is so smart he thinks he can solve all of our problems and if that involves the death of two to three million people so be it oh god I, I, I'm subconsciously thinking this how this influenced even my script because I have a phrase in my script uh, in my comic book which is the smartest person in the room is the easiest person to con mm-hmm. because they think they are the smartest person in the room yeah. uh, god that's just another branch from being influenced by this book well, I'm talking about gods here in the uh, the first the first real page of the weirdos. Um, my character Ashley, the flying squirrel, he's talking about gods, and he said, "I think it's less important that a person believes in a god." Um, or what, I'm quoting my own work. It is oh, it is less important that a person believes in a god than it is that they know that they are not one. And that was something I love I, that. Yeah, so like it was a. Uh, it was. I was not the first person to have that thought, but I came across it on my own. So, like, I'm I'm almost two years sober. Um, I'm a recovered alcoholic. Wonderful. And so I go to meetings every week, or whatever. And I was sitting in a meeting one day, and they talk a lot about God. And so this came across in some of my work because in that first, you know, segment, that first scene, he's in a meeting. And um, I oh yeah, these these suits, yeah, these empty yeah, yeah. Suits. So he's just kind of yeah. talking. He says, you know, we talk about God a lot, and. Um, I have this phrase that I use and I love it and it's um, the universe is bigger than God and that's not to say there isn't one. It's to say that there's room for all of us. There's room for everyone because everyone has their own interpretations of God. So the universe is bigger than God becomes this thing where we should just be kind to each other because it's so big. It's not one thing. And yeah. so, yeah, that's what I love to plug my own work in the middle of Watchmen. Oh, yeah. sorry. Well, yeah, yeah. I did it. So what the hell? Yeah, why not? Let's go for it. But yeah, you, you mentioned your own and I was on the same track and I was like, oh yeah, this is yeah. perfect. We can, we can plug this. But, the, but it's a pivotal point in the story. And I don't think people, if they read it and watch it, um, when he's in the board meeting, there's an assassination attempt and you see just for him mentally be able to defeat the assassination attempt but it plays out beautifully later on when you read about it because it's something of his ego that's play because not he's smarter to even the guy's going a gun he's able to navigate but there's a little bit of wizard behind the curtains happening at yeah. the same time yeah it's a wonderful play i love that whole point of that story remember the, the assassination it's like mm-hmm. taking a pill don't take the pill you yeah yeah, yeah yeah but it's a little bit a little 
there's a reason why it has to be theatrical, and you don't see it yet until you, the story goes. Until on. Rorschach kind of uh, unfolds the whole thing. Yeah. But you know, we're part we're we're investigating the the whole story with Rorschach, so basically we know what he knows. You know, um, which is kind of that, that's an interesting part of the book. Well, because right, because it's a murder mystery, and he's the one that thinks that this is needs to be investigated. Why nobody really cares because a comedian died and he's a bad guy. Who the hell? I don't care who kills him. He's yeah. done. He's gone. I. And Rorsch, I think there's much more going on than, you know, people care to, you know, care yet. Yeah. No, and, you know, he's the whole black and white thing. And I, I don't know, thinking about that actually makes his motivations, I think, are pure. He wants to make sure that whoever killed the comedian is brought to justice. But he has to know that the comedian himself was on the black side of black and white. Yeah. You know, so I... I guess I can't, you have to think about his motivations there. I don't know. There's he, a lot of stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, there is a lot of stuff going yeah. on. But I think that we should uh, segue a little bit, because we're probably getting close to the end, to the television show that is currently being produced by HBO. Yes. Um, it's brilliant. I They've, we, they've yeah. aired two episodes so far. The third episode airs tonight. Today's November 3rd, so if you're listening to this. Oh, tonight, yeah, the third or listen two years from now. Yeah. yeah, or two years from now. That's, that's how far along I am. <laughs> um, when they were announcing it a couple of years ago, I don't think... Even until I first saw the first episode, no one could have predicted what was going to happen with this TV series because we heard things like it's a Watchmen show, but it's not actually the Watchmen. It's not going to be a retelling of the story. So everyone's like, what is this going to be? And so until that first episode played, we were all like, okay, we see how this has been laid out for us. So to to just break it down real simply, Watchmen, the TV show, takes place in this universe where the comic book is canon. So everything that happened in this book, um, the whole murder mystery, the whole um, squid on New York, all this stuff happened, right? Okay. And the TV show takes place in 2019, this year, in that timeline. Oh, I get so it. So this is like someone kind of figured, here's what's going to happen after this book, and they figured it all the way up until now. And now we're focusing on these characters, what is it, 30 years since this happened? So 85? Yeah. I mean, 35 years after this book had come out, um, what is that world like? It's a nice, I like that pitch. It's, it's I love a, that pitch, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a brilliant concept, but Damon Lindelof, who was one of the uh, the creative masterminds behind Lost, um, he um, took He also this, did, uh, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but he, he's, uh, did Lost and Leftovers. Uh, he worked with J.J. Abrams with Lost, and he did a nice pitch with Lost to the executives, which saying, I want to do a TV show with Twilight, Twilight Zone meets Gilligan's Island. <laughs> which is Lost is one of my favorite shows of all time and it I is kind of like Twilight Zone yeah. meets Gilligan's Island yeah. absolutely <laughs> yeah Lost is one of my favorite shows of all time I love the finale despite what other people say I think it was a if you're if you're someone who's looking for all the literal answers you're watching the wrong show that's, no, that's my opinion no. on that um, you know like oh explain the you know the smoke monster the polar bear they kind of did that but that was not what the show was oh, about oh man the third season was just phenomenal yeah oh that that last that last episode where you know we have to go back and you realize oh my god we're in the future yeah, yeah. that was like uh, shut I will up. never yeah. forget that moment yeah. watching that episode because the yeah. whole episode you're like where are they oh, where the whole are season we? yeah the yeah. whole season and then, then the last pitch you're like shut up yeah. right well they did that every season right yeah. shut pretty much god. yeah yeah all right, so, we, <coughs> so, uh, so what I'm saying is David Lindoff is part of this and he's done he is, he's he, the one. incredible work. I don't think Leftovers gets the credit because they didn't let it cook for a little bit. They wanted something immediately gratifying and it's a slow cook Leftovers is. It's, well, yeah. it's, it's a slow burn. Well, just yeah. like Lost was. I mean, yeah. Lost had its episodes, but it was a slow burn too because they wasn't, they weren't really sure how long they were, maybe she was going to make them do it. Right. Again, money making, you know, like they're like, it's hard for t- TV season because you're supposed to 
you, you don't know how long a season yeah, and loss is so serialized it was always about moving the plot forward so if they don't know how much time they have how much plot can we give out you know without always, always have to which is why certain seasons like season two kind of they're they just they weren't spinning as fast as they could or they were spinning too fast and there wasn't a lot of information being held out. So David Lindelof is the same thing as Zack Snyder to where he knew HBO was going to be making the show regardless. They're going to be making a Watchmen show and so whoever has the best pitch can have it and Damon Lindelof is a huge Watchmen fan. He just wrote a letter um, he posted on his Instagram last week. It's like five or six pages long and it's why he's doing this and how much Watchmen means to him. Okay. And it's a, it's a phenomenal letter if you're listening to this and you can look it up. Look up Damon Lindelof's letter to his fans about Watchmen. Um, he knows that Alan Moore is not a a fan of this and he said if you're a fan of Alan Moore you don't want to offend him don't watch the show that's where we're at because HBO was going to make this regardless and he's like I think I'm the best person to do this and so far I have to agree with Damon Lindelof <laughs> because you know he's yeah. not even sullying the reputation of Watchmen the graphic novel he's leaving it alone he's you know envisioning this universe years decades after the events of this book so really he can we could call it an alternate timeline for all we care it'll never affect the book which is the best way to approach this i think it was the logical step and it's very yeah very fitting because you can have a little more play and you don't have to offend people that are really appreciative of the book and movie um we're kind of wrapping up a little time here. Gosh, Dennis, I mean, I know, we, we almost have to come back and talk a little bit about this. This is fascinating. Oh, we can do part two. <laughs> yeah, part two. We definitely would have to almost. And, um, uh, so, yes, Watchmen on HBO. HBO, yeah. Um, the movie came out in it's 10 years, 10, an, 10 it's year 10, anniversary. Yeah. I can't believe it's been 10 years, but that's what happened. You get old things speed up a little bit. Um, yeah, it's been 35, 34, 35 years since the book came out. And, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, before you go, Dennis, uh, just remind people, even the links of how people can yeah, find so your stuff. My name is Dennis Vagen. I'm just kidding. It's Vagen. 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 I still love that. Obey. Yeah. Obey. And, well, I'm like, I'm Norwegian <laughs> and Danish, so I think that's where the, the name comes from. So. Oh, we're, I, I'm 41% so, Swedish. We're supposed to not like each other. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you know what? Evolution, man. Evolution. We decided, you know what? My yeah. neighbor's an all right guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so Dennis Vogan, V-O-G-E-N. Yeah. You can, you know, if you want to Google me, like I'm on Amazon, I'm on Barnes & Noble, you can find my novels there. But right now, and hopefully for a long time, I'm a comic book writer and an artist. I'm the guy behind The Weirdos. Uh, that's The Flying Squirrel, The Sketch, uh, The Blue Ringer, and The Wait. Um, all five issues of that book are out. Um, you can buy those. And I'm working on a colorized version of that book, which will be a graphic novel next year. Um, you can follow me on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. My production company is called Sleeping Kitty Productions. Um, I've got a YouTube channel, and I have a I have a band, too, that I don't really play, but they're called The Next Step, and we've released three albums. What you can instrument? Find them on iTunes. I play all the instruments. I actually record all the music myself, but oh, wow. might as well just plug it. It's called The Next Step is the name of my band. But yeah, I'm on iTunes and stuff and on, on YouTube and... Yeah, I haven't played in a while, but I think next year is like the 15th anniversary of my first album, so I think I might play a couple shows and just have fun with that. But yeah, you got to let it, next time you come out, you got to let us know. We'll yeah, I'll bring def- my guitar, we'll sing Kumbaya. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know the words, right? It's hard. Yeah. yeah it's it hard. Kumbaya. <laughs> yeah. All right, Dennis. Well, as you know, um, it's oh, not. Thank you for having me. I have to oh, thank you. Gosh, yeah. You can't hear the applause. The audience here just loves it. But thank you very much, Nick, for inviting me over. You are I absolutely welcome. I've never really done like a podcast. So this is like my debut in the podcasting world. So it's wonderful. You. you did awesome. Thank you. Yeah. No fear. All right, Dennis. As you know, it's not over till the guest says it's over. It's over. I love that. Oh